Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm not Tim Hillahan. I'm Mary Califf. <laughs> I'm actually the producer of Behavioral Grooves podcast. I've been working on the show for two years, but this week I'm filling in uh, in front of the mic for Tim, who is unfortunately out sick. And welcome, Mary. This is a great treat for me to have you with me on this episode. Oh, this is going to be awesome. It's really fun for me, too. <laughs> well, I'm sure it would have been more fun for you if it sort of been Tim instead of me. But, uh, you know, you, you're stuck with me. There you I go. don't know if that's <laughs> true. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for saying that. And with that, Mary, I have a question for you. Yeah. What's that? Okay. So you are a parent of three wonderful kids, and they're all under the age of, is it nine yeah, or Yeah, well, the eight? eldest one's just turned nine. Yeah, there you go. So my question to you is, do you ever feel overwhelmed with all that you have to do or guilty that you're not doing enough for them? Is that ever a, an emotion that you get? <laughs> all the time. pretty much all day every day it's probably easier to talk about the times where i don't feel overwhelmed or guilty (laughs) (laughs) well and i think that's that you're not alone in those feelings i mean i have two kids and i know you know they're 17 and 13 and they're at a different stage but man between getting them to practices and school stuff and variety of other things as well as just kind of the emotional roller coaster that uh you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers go through. It's just, it's crazy. But our guest today has done some fantastic research in this area. Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn is a clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and co-host of a really, really great podcast called Psychologists Off the Clock. And she is also a mother of three. Yael's academic research explores the interaction between relationship problems and mental health conditions, And we were lucky enough to talk to her about her new book, which is called Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage, Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. Uh, It's a fantastic book. Yeah, so Yael, in her private practice, in her writing, and in her podcasting, she uses evidence-based science to help individuals and couples to learn how to manage work, parenting, marriage, and do it in a more effective and fulfilling way. Yeah, so Mary, my conversation with Yale covered a lot of ground, talking about mindsets, work-life enhancement, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, self-compassion, and we even asked a musical question in honor of Tim. Yes, we did. (laughs) So with that... Listeners, please sit back with your headphones on while you ignore your children for a bit with your favorite parental brew and enjoy our conversation with Yael Schoenbrunn. Yael Schoenbrunn, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. I am a huge geeked out fan of your podcast and tickled pink to be a guest. We are super excited to be here, and I know that Tim would have loved to be on this, but you know what? It's even extra special because we have Mary with us, so that's going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... We want to get started with a speed drawing question, so a very easy one to start. Yael, do you like tea or coffee? If I had to just pick one for the rest of my life, Mm -hmm. it would be tea, because I feel that you can pick different flavors that match your mood. And it feels to me like there's more variety. But generally speaking, I like coffee in the morning and tea in the afternoon. (laughs) Ooh, see, now we've heard that quite a bit. We've heard that the coffee morning, tea, afternoon kind of thing. Um, and then we have heard the definite, um, no coffee all day or tea all day and or the, the other. So this is, it's amazing how many people different and different options on there. All right. (laughs) Second speed round question. On Christmas Day, would you rather take a visit to the beach or the mountains? Actually, funny you should ask, because on Christmas Day, our tradition is to go to the beach, even though we live in New England. Um, I <laughs> am not Christian, and so we're very bored on Christmas Day. And the <laughs> beach is empty, and we go, and we get really cold, and we sometimes fly kites, and then we have hot cocoa, and it takes a chunk of day where there's nothing else to do. 
Mary might have researched that a little bit. Oh. Oh. So she okay. might have gone in there and said, hey, I think, I think, you know, goes to the beach because that's a nice thing. But it is interesting that you go to the beach and you are a New Englander. That's December is not a warm time for the beach. So. No, it's it's a challenging thing, especially because I grew up in California and I am not somebody who likes the cold. But I have three little boys who are very into New England weather and being tough and showing how tough they are and making fun of me for being a fragile flower. So everybody has fun with it. Fun. That, it's so funny. So I'm I live in Minnesota. Actually, Mary lives in Minnesota as well. And uh, my kids are total like my daughter wears shorts like today it's like seven degrees out and she wore shorts to school as, as much as we try to get her to stop she she won't and so she goes yeah. look you you raised a minnesota girl so I'm totally. Totally. all right they're a different breed than than we are i guess <laughs> yes that's true <laughs> okay next question would you rather have dinner with your favorite musician actor or sports hero well, in the lead up to this recording, I was thinking about who my favorite musicians are, and I decided that it is currently Weird Al Yankovic, and I would definitely love to have dinner with him. He, sound, he seems fascinating. He's got talent with the accordion. He's a brilliant lyricist, and he's got this crazy curly hair. I just feel like he would be a really interesting person to talk to. Oh, wow. Definitely. Have you seen his movie? I haven't yet. We So my boys are really into Weird Al, but it's rated too high, so we can't see it with them. So we're like on the fence about whether we should wait until they're a little bit older or we should just go see it ourselves, me and my, me and well, my partner. It sounds like it's it's like a total crazy like mishmash. Like he's married to yeah. Madonna yeah. and yeah. like go down to Pablo Escobar. <laughs> I mean, it's just... I mean, again, it's like, oh, that is so fitting. Totally. <laughs> and I, I did read an interview with that was with him and Daniel Radcliffe, who plays him. And it, I don't know. It just seems like a total trip. Wow. <laughs> so there would be the thing. You could get Daniel Radcliffe and Weird Al together oh, for dinner. Nice, and yeah. that oh. would be a really cool dinner conversation. My three boys would definitely want to be there because they're huge Harry Potter fans. So they're obsessed <laughs> with Daniel Radcliffe, too. <laughs> Oh, all right. All right. We we could go down that that rabbit hole for way way too long. So let's just let's just go on final speed round question. What has more influence on our lives, circumstances or the stories we tell ourselves about those circumstances? According to research, it is the stories that we tell ourselves. It's these intentional activities that have to do with how we interpret the events around us. So while we might think it's our circumstances, they actually account for a much smaller percent than our intentional activities, including the stories that we tell and how we uh, interpret the world around us. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's such an interesting piece because I think you're absolutely the the default for most people is, well, circumstances are what kind of define how I respond in various different things. And as you said, the research points to the fact it's not necessarily the circumstances, but it's how we, you know, structure those and the stories that we tell ourselves about those circumstances, which is a lot about what your book is about. So uh, could you could you start by just tackling, you know, the idea behind why this book was something that you kind of took on. And again, as we think about this, I just would love to hear what was the impetus for it? Well, the the very obvious impetus is that I became a working parent and found myself <laughs> struggling tremendously as many working parents do. And what was kind of interesting is that I, I as much as I knew that working parent would working parenthood would be challenging, I actually really thought that I had all the ingredients to make it as doable as possible. I had a job that I loved. I had a supportive partner. I had understanding colleagues. I had a healthy pregnancy. And then I had a healthy baby. So I thought, like, I got this in the bag. I'm a clinical psychologist. I know the tools. I, I totally can do this. And then I found myself, like, crying every commute to work and sitting there at my desk writing grants and feeling all torn up that my child was being taken care of by virtual strangers. And then I would go pick him up and be home at night with him and just feeling kind of ashamed of myself that all my colleagues were lapping me because they were doing work at night while I was, you know, staring at my baby. And I just couldn't sort of figure out how I was going to do this thing that I'd worked so hard to get to, right? I, I really worked hard to get my PhD and get a professional status and have a baby and like organize myself. So I started doing what all nerdy people do and reading everything that I could get my hands on from the bookstore and the library. 
But most of what I saw there was pretty disheartening. It was a lot about the social structures that are inadequate, the policies that are pretty inhumane, the workplaces that are totally inflexible, the marriages that are unequal. And much of that is true, and I don't argue with it, but I was kind of like, well, what am I going to do with that? And also, I don't have all of those issues, and yet I'm still struggling. So I started thinking more about, you know, that there was this piece, and I'm a clinical psychologist, so I have this bias to being intrigued by the psychology of this thing that didn't seem to get talked about much at all. And so mm-hmm. I started looking at the academic literature, and what I found there was a little bit more fitting for what my experience was in terms of the identity shift and the, the sort of transition in identity that happens and how we handle it. And then I came upon this other piece of science that was really fascinating because the other part of where my heart lies is in positive psychology. I'm really interested in how people cultivate happiness regardless of their circumstances. And I found this construct called work-family enrichment that I'd never heard of before. I heard lots about work-family conflict, but nothing about work-family enrichment. And it's this basic idea that our roles can help each other out. And that was pretty intriguing to me because you don't hear it that much. And it wasn't entirely what I was experiencing, but I started thinking, well, how would that even work? And I started diving deeper into literature on creativity and rest and happiness and stress management. And I found all these really cool ways that tension between roles can actually serve us in very advantageous ways, can help our roles, but can help us as um, individuals moving through the world. And so what the way that I kind of see this book is as a corollary to a happiness book for, you know, a world, <laughs> but it's like happiness and working parenthood. How do we thrive more? And that doesn't mean that the outside in structures, you know, the systems that are inadequate shouldn't also change, but it's sort of like given where we are today, how can we learn to journey through working parenthood with more happiness and more skill? One of my favorite quotes, one of my favorite parts of the book was, you talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how exactly what you're talking about, that she is quoted as saying that her success as a Supreme Court uh, justice uh, wasn't despite her status as a mother, but it was because of her being a mother. And I absolutely loved that way of reframing it because I think as mothers or parents, we're often made to feel like we need to keep that part of our lives a bit quiet or not talk about it at work, you know, keep a professional hat on. Can you talk a bit more about how just kind of reframing that was a really important part of the book? Yeah. So you're getting to the mindset piece, which is ultimately what I hope people get out of this book is a mindset shift. And I somehow, I, to some extent, think about it as like a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, which most people are familiar with Carol Dweck's research. But largely, we think about it in the context of student learning, that somebody with a fixed mindset, say they think I'm good at math or I'm bad at math. And that kind of sets them up to um, believe that whatever feedback they get of the scores is confirming. And also, if they don't do well, that there's no point in trying because they don't have the capacity. So it's that idea that our capacity just, capacities are inborn and Im- not malleable. Whereas a growth mindset, what we believe is where we start is not necessarily where we finish, and that based on effort, interest, and resources, we can get to a different place. And what we find is that folks with a growth mindset are able to learn more effectively over time. The same thing goes with how we think about working parenthood. If we think about it as only conflict, as you know, the scarcity mindset where our roles compete for our finite resources, then that is that tends to be our experience. And we may miss out on these opportunities like Ruth Bader Ginsburg is noticing that there's this pause that can refresh us. That's a quote from her. Yep. And if we are able to transfer and this is what where research actually confirms that if we are able to see that there are opportunities for our roles to feed each other, then we're more likely to to access those experiences and benefit more from them. And so my hope is that this book helps people to convert from a very fixed mindset about role tension to more of a growth mindset. And what I think is really important to mention there is that that doesn't mean that we don't have conflict in really uncomfortable days and really terrible experiences, but rather that we see those as a part of the bigger picture, that adversity is a part of the experience and that it's a difficult part, but also that often we can grow from adversity. And in fact, the research shows that in many different circumstances. 
I find it really interesting. So you, what you're you're not saying is that by just having a positive attitude on this, it's going to be Pollyanna and the world is going to be all, you know, unicorns and, <laughs> and rainbows and everything else. But by shifting our mindset, we can change how we are looking even at those bad days and, and looking at those situations. And, and that changes the way that we actually see them and feel them. It reminds me a lot of David Robson wrote a great book called The Expectation Effect. I'm not sure if you've, you've, you've read it. It does a lot of really good research into mindsets and a variety of different things. You know, Aaliyah Crum and, and her work on, you know, which is again, some of my favorite research out there. But this idea of shifting mindset around actually can impact how that circumstances we talked about up in front, right? That's the story we tell about the circumstance, but the circumstance itself's impact on us changes because of the story we tell. And so I just, I love this, this concept. If I was a parent though, and I'm going, all right, that's easy. Yeah. You, you say just shift your mindset, but uh, it's not quite that easy. So what are some things that people can do in order to help them kind of take on a, a different mindset about that relationship between work and parenting? Well, I think that, you know, we can start by just asking ourselves questions and they are questions that get at these different ways, these different pathways that we can access work, family enrichment. So I'll just name the three pathways that I talk about in the book. So the first is the transfer effect. And that's the idea that whatever role we're in, we're typically building some kind of skill when we're parenting, we're being patient and doing good perspective taking and, you know, having a lot of compassion and love. And those are skills that actually transfer pretty well to the workplace because most jobs really find benefit in you having those interpersonal skills. And then whatever job you're at, you know, you guys are podcasters, so you're dealing with technology, you're thinking deep questions on the level of deep questions, you're talking to different people and, you know, doing research and those kinds of skills can help you teach your kids in really unique and special ways. So that's this idea of the transfer effect. The second pathway is the buffer effect. And that's the idea that we can have a stressful day in one role and then step into another role and have a more positive experience that can take the edge off our stress. And it can also help us get perspective. So, for example, if your kids are going through a tough developmental milestone, if you go to work and you see people with different kinds of problems, it can help you get better perspective on your own or even just get a break from thinking about whatever the problem is that you are experiencing at home and, and vice versa, too. And the final pathway is what I call the additive effect. And that's the idea psychologists talk about. Um, meaning and purpose as one way that we access greater happiness in life. There's um, a lot of research showing that the more meaning we have in life, the happier and more sustainable our happiness is. And when we're able to access a sense of purpose and meaning in multiple different roles, it gives us more of that meaning and purpose to be had. And so having an, a life that is full of different roles can actually make us happier. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that we're not stressed out and pulled between things, but there is this opportunity for greater meaning. And so one of the, to go back to your question of, you know, how can we begin to cultivate more of a work family enrichment mindset? It is to kind of ask yourself questions that tap into these different pathways. So for example, what are ways that each of my roles might help the other? What are ways that my parenting role might help my work role? What are ways that my work my work role might help my parenting role. Similarly, what are ways that each of my roles can maybe take the edge off stress in the other or can or how can my roles help me get better, better perspective on life or better perspective on each of the areas of challenge that I have in each of the roles? And then finally, what are ways that having a foot in multiple demanding roles helps me to access greater meaning or a sense of purpose in life? And by asking yourself and reflecting on those kinds of questions, you start to kind of turn toward these opportunities to really think about um, how does having a foot in multiple demanding roles help me to have a more enriched life? I love it. I, I love it. It's so, <laughs> so practical. One of the things, Yael, I mean, you talk a lot about practical stuff in the book, but you really weave in your personal story and it was really poignant to read at the beginning of the book. You talk about a really difficult situation being torn between with your dad being very ill, with being a parent, being a daughter, being a sibling, being a professional. Can you talk about how you tapped into your own values and how 
that helped you through that situation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I can share a little bit about the story, which I always like to say that it was very well considered to include that story. And I did check it out with each of my family members because it is sort of a personal story. But I thought it was an important one and really brings to light this dilemma that most people with multiple demanding roles feel right Mm -hmm. at various points throughout the day and, you know, more acutely at certain points in life, which is that we're tugged between multiple roles and no matter what we do, we're kind of screwed (laughs) because we're going to drop the ball on something deeply, deeply important. And it's not just important to the other person or the other, you know, people who are involved in that role. It's important to us to really show up heart Mm -hmm. and soul for these people and roles that we care very much about. And that is a very painful thing. So the situation was that um, I live in Boston and my family of origin lives in California. My father had been sick for some time. And then my sister had her first baby. And um, at that time, we knew that my father was didn't have much longer. And so I decided my kids at that time were ages two through eight. And Mm. so they were pretty young and we don't have family nearby. So it was this big complicated logistical setup to have my mother-in-law come out to be with my family because my husband had a new job to take care of the kids so that he could work so that I could go out and be with my dying father and my sister and her new baby and support my mother as she was going through all the difficult things that she was going through. And I was going to go out for one week and it was, it was a very big deal. I'd never been away for that long. And then while I was out there, my father went into hospice And the Mm -hmm. day before I was set to return to Boston to relieve my mother-in-law so that she could go back and resume her life and also to be there for my son, who was turning nine, his favorite day of the year. He'd been planning it all year. Um, My father went into a coma. And on hospice, you know, the time is very limited. It's just a question of waiting for the body to shut down. And it was this moment in time that is forever seared into my brain where I was just I was like physically ill over it. I did not know what to do. Should I return home and be there for my husband so that he didn't lose his job and my mother-in-law could return and my son could have his mom there for his birthday and so that I could return to work because I had all these tasks that were stacking up and people that were waiting on me and patients who didn't know why I was gone because you don't share that as a therapist. Or should I stay and sit vigil with my siblings, um, with my dying father and be there for my mother? And it was unclear if it was going to be one day or a month. The hospice nurse said she didn't know. My dad had a pretty strong body other than the cancer that had attacked various organs. And so it was super unclear. And I went back and forth and back and forth. And then I decided, because I was really unclear about what to do, to turn to a practice that I teach patients in the therapy room, which is clarifying values. So I practice mm-hmm. a treatment, if people are interested, that's called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is an evidence-based treatment. And it has six core processes. But one of them that I really turn to often is this question of values. And values describe how it is that you most want to show up in a given moment. It's not tied to outcome. It really just represents how it is that you want to be, what it is that you want to represent. And it is a really useful compass in a moment where you really don't have like a good outcome that you can secure. But what you can do is clarify for yourself, how would I feel most proud to have showed up? And there's various questions that you can ask yourself or exercises that you can do. But one of my favorite is to travel forward 30 years and imagine your older self looking back on your current self and ask Mm -hmm. yourself what would make you most proud. But in that instance, what I did was I asked myself what I thought my father would want me to do. And that was pretty clarifying because I knew my father was really so dedicated to his grandsons and he would not have wanted me to miss his grandson's birthday. I just knew that. And so it helped me to make the decision. Now, unfortunately, I went back and he died the next day. And I still wonder about that. Should I have stayed one more day? And had I known, I would have. But I also find some consolation and some um, reassurance in myself to know that I stood by my values and and by trying to honor my dad as best that I could. And so that's why the values clarification is so useful, because we don't have control over outcomes and we can't tell the future. But when we have clarity in why we're showing up in a given way, it helps us to kind of hold on to that and and know with some self-confidence that we were trying to do something that had a way to reflect our core essence our core value oh i mean that it, it it is such a poignant 
um, story and the way that you just explained it here, I think, too, just kind of shows that it could be a myriad of different things, right? It's, it's, but we're often being pulled and tugged in multitudes of ways with uncertainty around it. And, and if we had clarity that if you would have known for sure, it's a whole different world of making those kind of decisions. But the tough part is making those decisions in that uncertainty that we have. And I love the idea of looking forward 30 years, what is going to be that reflective self kind of, or in, in your case, I loved, you know, the, the switch, like not me, but what would my, what would my father want? And that, I mean, it's such a, a, a great insight. And I think a, a great deal of your book is focusing on working on parenthood, working on kind of all of these kind of tugs and pulls that we have in, in modern day life from the inside out. Right. And you talk about that. Can you tell us what that means and what that kind of brings forth in, in the book? Yeah. So I kind of compare outside in solutions to inside out solutions and outside in solutions are things that are more at the systemic level. So I do think that largely when it comes to working parenthood, we have looked to outside in solutions and that is, you know, changes to policy, changes to workplace flexibility, trying to create expectations for marriages to be more equal on the gender front for you know men to take more of the childcare role and for women to feel more free to pursue professional ambitious roles and i think absolutely that those are really critical where i think they fall short in working parenthood and elsewhere because I, I do think that in our society we tend to look to outside in solutions a lot more often like if i'm feeling bad what can i buy what pill can I take? What expert can give me the answer that will help me to stop feeling bad? And the trouble with that is that we live inside of bodies that are not meant to always feel good. And when it comes to working parenthood, or more generally speaking, most adult lives where we inhabit multiple demanding roles that we care about, we are fundamentally going to be pulled in different directions. And so looking to outside in solutions to solve what is a fundamentally human experience is going to leave us feeling like failures because no matter how good our setup is, and, you know, I had the chance to interview people with really difficult situations for this book and really, you know, privileged situations. And in every case, nobody said to me, this is super easy now that I have <laughs> now that I have extended leave now that, you know, I really have a supportive partner. Like I got this in the bag. It's super easy. That wasn't how I felt. And that that isn't how most people feel. Freud actually has this great quote that I always think about, which is love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. And so to be human means to be pulled in different directions. And in fact, evolutionary psychologists talk about that we are wired to be in conflict. And in fact, that conflict yeah. helps us. And I talk about various ways that it helps us. Um, but to look to outside in solutions to solve that is going to create this unwinnable battle. And so instead, what I advocate is inside out solutions. And what I mean more generally in, to that end is psychological tools. So tools from psychology that help us manage uncomfortable internal experiences, including um, being pulled in different directions, including, you know, feeling sad or guilty or anxious or inadequate. Um, and those kinds of tools from psychology, I think, need to be complementary of our progress in the outside world, which which we also need. There's a quote in the book. I will mess it up here, but um, it, it goes like this. Tough experiences deepen us as humans, grow our wisdom, contribute to our creativity, connect us with people and ideas, and even heighten our happiness. Gains live right alongside our pains, which I think kind of is what you were just talking about, right? This, even if you have the best situation in the world, we, we don't live in a pain-free world, nor should we. That's not who we are as humans. The human condition is just kind of there. It kind of we talked with Paul Bloom, who wrote The Sweet Spot, which, um, again, he talks about this idea that we aren't truly human until we're we're dealing in, in, with adversity and various different things. And it's part of what brings meaning. And you talked a lot about meaning. So all of those things, I think, are really important. And one of the stories you tell in the book, too, is about the, the kibitz, I believe, and it was, was, your, was your father. Yeah. Uh, I think it kind of relates to this, too. Can you tell that story and how that falls back into this uh, a <laughs> sure. little bit. Sure. This is a really interesting history. So if people are not familiar, these kind of communities that exist in Israel called 
kibbutz or kibbutzim is for plural. And they are these socialist communities where they were that they don't exist so much anymore. But at the time that my father was being raised, they were socialist, communist, agricultural communities where, you know, yeah. the means of production were owned by the collective and everybody had the same. And it was driven for a lot of reasons, economics, prejudice um, against Jews. You know, it was sort of in the lead up to World War One and World War Two. And then they really proliferated after World War Two when Israel became independent. But in any case, part of the ideology that drove the development of the kibbutzim was this desire for women and men to be more equal and for women to be freed from the yoke of domestic burden. And part of how they did that was creating a real community and structure of support around child care. And so my father was raised in this very... I think provocatively shocking way um, for most Westerners, which is that he, you know, once he returned from the hospital with his mother, that was just a few days old, he was placed into a children's house with same age peers that were born in the same year as him and raised in the children's house until he left for the army. And so that means that he never lived with his parents. He always lived in a children's house cared for by a professional caregiver. That was a, a kibbutznik too, somebody from the kibbutz that, who had that professional role. And he saw his parents every day for a few hours. It was dedicated time and it was intended to be really quality, sweet time. And he revered his parents, loved them to death. And they adored him so much. And he has two siblings and they adored each other, but they had a lot of independence and, um, it was great. Like they, they were, um, taken care of in this really ideal way that I think in our modern world, I, I know I sometimes have the thought, like, wouldn't it be great if I had a professional <laughs> caregiver and if, you know, a I could, community that yeah, is dedicated, to, dedicated this. Yeah. to this and like, this is what everybody does. It would be so easy, but it turns out that parents, especially mothers were really not content with the situation because they wanted to be more involved. And what's interesting, actually, I'm working on a new book project that explores the kibbutz experiment in some depth. And so I've been doing interviews with my, um, my family that grew up in the kibbutz, including my dad's sister. And she left the kibbutz because she did not want to not be with her child. She did not want somebody else putting her child to bed. She did not want to not know their shoe size, right? Because yeah. even though there was so much beautiful about her, ch- and she says, I loved growing up in the kibbutz. It was kibbutz. It was such a rich experience, but that's not what I wanted as a parent. And so I think it just speaks to, even if we can manifest these ideal sort of utopian kinds of societies where our children are taken care of and we're free to work and we're free to see our kids and men and women are equal, that that's not the human condition. Like it, it just like, it's hard. It's hard to want to be involved in multiple roles that we care about deeply. It, there's, there's no outside solution for that. You talk a lot of the book about uh, psychological flexibility and it reminded me of the work of Annie Duke and we've interviewed her recently. And you, I, you mentioned before we started recording that you're going to interview her on your podcast as well soon. And she talks, obviously, her new book is about quitting and finding the right time to quit. And uh, actually, successful people know when to quit, and that's what makes them successful. But you talk about it in terms of parenting, that sometimes we need to pivot and sometimes we need to move on. And that's a little bit about what you're talking about. Like sometimes even the ideal circumstances aren't what works best. So can you tell us a bit more about how you talk about psychological uh, flexibility in the book and how it can help us as a parent. Yes. And I will say that after reading Annie's book, I'm like, I should stop using the word pivot and I should just own. I'm telling people sometimes (laughs) we need to quit because I think she makes a really good point Mm -hmm. that we have this fear of using the word quit. But we should proudly say sometimes it doesn't work and we need to quit. It's not the right choice. So, There are six core processes in acceptance and commitment therapy, and they all converge on this underlying construct that Mary is pointing to called psychological flexibility, which is defined as the choice to keep going or to quit based Mm -hmm. on your values and what's going on around you and inside of you. And, you know, in any role that we're in, there are going to be moments where it makes sense to persist and moments where it makes sense to quit. And it really requires us to kind of tune in what should be the leading value here and what's going on around me and what's going on inside of me and and make the choice with that in mind. Now, the thing about working parenthood and, and even parenthood taken exclusively is that it 
can feel like the ground is always moving underneath you, right? That the, mm-hmm. your, your children are always needing different things. And certainly if you're doing a lot of role transitions, you have to be moving between things a lot. But what I think is really helpful to think about is that the more we practice that shifting and that flexibility and that choice reflection, the easier it becomes to make those choices more skillfully. Um, and I always think about this research on lifetime bilinguals who are able to switch from one language to another pretty effortlessly. It's not effortless entirely, but it's much it's with much less effort than people who learn two languages later in life. And I think if we can see that opportunity to make those choices and to move from you know persisting to quitting uh, more often and see that as an opportunity rather than something to push against, that we can learn to do it with more fluency. And I think that's really what Annie's talking about, too, which is that if we can more openly consider this option of quitting and practice doing it, it doesn't feel as overwhelming and scary. It just becomes a part of our behavioral repertoire. I love the reference to the bilingual and growing up and, and how that works, because I think that is really it's a lot of what Annie's talking about is it's not we all do it. It's just we need to be able to do it better and, and, and at a more appropriate time and, and with more, as you said, I don't need to kind of call it pivoting when it really is just quitting. I need to just be able to do that. And what you're you're also what I'm, what I'm hearing and, and what I read in the book is that. You know, at some points we're, we're being pulled in multitude directions and sometimes, you know, you can't have it all. So you just have to quit one thing or the other. And it isn't always in favor of the kids. That isn't necessarily what I think you're saying. It's not always that I have to forego my career, my job, whatever it is. And I think that's a really important message. We just talked with uh, Nathan and Susanna Farr, who wrote The Upside of Uncertainty, and they talked in there, they had a a quote from, I think it was Nathan's grandfather or grandmother, I can't remember exactly which, but it was was this, it was, parents teach their children to live their dreams by living their own dreams. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's one of those kind of things where kids learn from seeing how we do things and, and having those experiences. And I think, I listened to your podcast of your own when you talked to, with your co-hosts about this and you're talking about, you know, not showing up at a kid's field trip can provide that kid with valuable insights that you would have, would, they would have never gotten if they, if you would have shown up. So is that, am, am I capturing yes, that right? And I'm sorry because I think Mary, you were trying to head me there too and I missed the opportunity, but yes, thank you, Kurt, for, for bringing it back. No, Which, yeah. I, I don't think, yeah, it's all, it's all No, good. no, I, I love, I love that you're, um, bringing it back because it is such a good point and I'll, I'll sort of double down on it, which is that, it's not even that sometimes we have to and it's going to be okay. It's that we live in this culture that often presses parents to always be present and always be enriching and always be monitoring how they're feeling and always be monitoring their safety. And even though that is such a cultural message that seems pervasive and in our face and that we feel guilty when we're not, it actually is not helpful that we when we are doing this intensive hovering kind of parenting, we're actually interfering with our children's development, with their ability to learn how to creatively problem solve, to recover from mistakes, to build self-competency. And it is hard to push against the cultural message because we worry about social judgment. And, you know, we have this thought of like, well, wouldn't it just be better to, you know, monitor my kid's safety? What's the harm? But actually there is a harm because we're communicating to our kids that the world is unsafe and that we can't trust them to make their own choices and to monitor their own safety and, um, and that they're not going to be able to figure it out on their own. And so it is actually very, very helpful to interrupt our tendency to hover as parents. And also I'll, I'll sort of say another piece, which is that, you know, we're, we're wired to want to take care of our kids, but our culture has progressed much more quickly than our brains have. And so some of that wiring, which is like, oh my gosh, what if my kids aren't safe? Really harkens back to like pre-modern times and is not so necessary these days. And while there is so much fear mongering, the statistics do not bear out that our children are, are in danger most of the time in most situations. And certainly if you're listening to this podcast, your kids are probably largely safe most of the time. Even if your brain is telling you, oh no, but if I'm not watching them as they go into the store, they could be kidnapped. Or if I leave them at home alone for 10 minutes, they could uh, answer the door to a stranger and be abducted. <laughs> like 
Those yeah. things statistically are so unlikely. And what is more likely is that we are going to cause them to think in more anxious ways and cause them to not feel self-competent in handling situations on their own. And so the this idea of quitting, of sort of pulling back on our parenting impulse is actually a really useful one for ourselves. It can free up some resources to do other things that might be valuable and really for our kids' development. We're kind of touching on the topic of resilience, which is Something we've talked about recently with uh, Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman, and she's actually done some research on what are the different components of resilience. And I love that we're talking about this in a different way with our children. But one of the other components of resilience is actually self-compassion and being compassionate on ourselves, which I think, I mean, I certainly struggle with. I think it's a universal problem that we struggle with self-compassion you talk about it in the book. Can you you actually break it down into three areas? Can you talk a bit more about self-compassion and why it is so important? Oh, it's so important. And I, I think it's really important in any realm of life. And I think it's especially important in parenting. <laughs> and I always joke, I actually, I was just asked this recently, if I'm hard on myself because now I've written a book about parenting and working oh. and does it make it that much harder? And I, I was like, no, because... I am well aware that nobody does this perfectly and I always have self-compassion in hand. It is something I actively practice and it has, you know, compared to when I first became a parent and I wasn't practicing it, mm-hmm. it, I feel so much better in life. And I am, as to your point, Mary, able to be so much more resilient when things go south because they do, like with some regularity, unfortunately. <laughs> but fortunately and unfortunately, because I'm also teaching my kids, like it's okay to have a bad day and to make a mistake And what you do in response to that is what really counts. And so it starts with self-compassion. And self-compassion has been defined by researchers. The primary researcher is Kristen Neff um, and also Chris Germer. And they both have terrific books that I highly recommend. And they define it as having three components. So the first is mindfulness. So it's, it's the skill of making contact with whatever the internal experience is. So if you feel ashamed or embarrassed or uh, like inadequate in some way, just allowing yourself to feel that way, making space for it. The second component is self-kindness. And that's the kind of idea that you would talk to somebody or treat, how you would talk to somebody or treat somebody who you loved and cared about who was in your shoes. Can you send that level of self-kindness to yourself? Because most of us would not say to a, a dear friend who is having a hard time, oh, you're the worst parent ever. How could you drop the ball? We wouldn't do that. We would say, you're... You're human. You you generally do a great job. You had a rough day. Give yourself grace. You, you know, do what you need to do to get through this. But you're not bad. You're you're very good, and you're going to be all right. So can we practice saying and literally practice saying that to ourselves? And for a lot of people who haven't had that practice, it feels awkward, like talking a, a language that you've never spoken. And mm. you can treat it as such and actually practice it. And the more you practice it, the more fluent you'll get. And then the third component is this component of common humanity. And that's the idea that whatever you're experiencing is probably pretty universal. When we're in pain, we start to (laughs) retract and feel like we are alone and nobody's ever felt this bad. But if we can sort of expand out and recognize that that is part of the human condition to feel embarrassed, to fail and, and feel like ashamed of ourselves, to feel really lonely, feeling really lonely is a pretty universal experience. And it can help to talk to somebody else, but it can also help to just recognize that, you know, even on your own, that, you know, working parents the world over or, you know, people who inhabit a human body the world over have had that same experience. And if you can make contact with that and feel that sense of connection, that can also help you. And so what self-compassion does is it gives you this opportunity to sort of soothe yourself and that helps you to be resilient, to bounce back a little bit more because then you don't shoot yourself with your, you know, you feel the pain and then you judge yourself for feeling the pain. This is what Buddhists call the second arrow. It's like we don't have control over the first arrows of life that come our way, but we don't have to judge our experience or judge our response to it. That just adds insult to injury. So self-compassion removes that second arrow, helps us to heal the first arrow, and then we can bounce back more effectively. Oh, that's such a great, I, I had never heard of that, that kind of perspective on that, that second arrow piece. It, it, it's that guilt that comes afterwards, right? And it's kind of rebuilding that thing. And one of the things that I'm always talking with others about in regards to this, particularly as it, in, in particular as it relates to children and kids is, you know, if you think of your kids as fragile, they're not. They're not as fragile as we often think they are. And 
again, as you said, there are definite things that can damage your kids and, and various different pieces. And I'm not saying that there aren't people out there that do horrible, bad things. But for most of the people listening to the show, at least I hope, you know, the the not showing up at their baseball game, the, you know, yelling at them in anger because they, they're not getting up on time. You didn't ruin their life, right? You, that that is not you can you can have that grace as you said, and just don't be swinging those second arrows like that. You know, staying up at the middle of the night, kind of over overthinking that. I think that's a that's a lovely metaphor. So thank you for that. And I think where the gra- the grace comes in as well on the the story that you shared about your dad that was really poignant. And and sometimes there's no right decision and there's no wrong decision. And having grace in those moments. I think that's what really struck me about your story is being self-compassionate when there isn't even a right answer was really poignant for me. Yeah. And I was just going to say one thing that I think helps, too, is just if you are a parent thinking about what it is that you'd like to model for your kids, like when they make a mistake, do you want them to beat themselves up? Probably not. You want them to take it seriously, Mm -hmm. but you want them to say, I'm human and recognize that being self-compassionate helps you to have that growth mindset. It's the fixed mindset that goes along with the self-criticism. Growth mindset people are able to say, I made a mistake and I can learn and grow and do better the next time. And so that self-compassion doesn't let you off the hook, quite the opposite. It gives you an opportunity to take a breath, pause, regroup, and then do better next time. And so it really is a powerful thing. It's not, to be clear, it's not letting yourself off the hook. It's actually helping you to stay in the game because you're taking better care of yourself and giving yourself room to grow. Well, and and I think you mentioned this again. I think it was in the interview. You're talking about the emotions are usually they're signals that something is going on and you just, it, it's how you interpret. Again, it goes back to the very first part, right? It's the stories we tell us about, you know, what's going on. And we have to understand that there's a signal happening, but how we respond to that signal and how we interpret that signal are two very different, different things. So exactly, yeah. exactly. All right. Well, Mr. Houlihan <laughs> is not here. <laughs> But I know he would be very angry with Mary and me if we did not ask you at least one musical question. Uh, and so. Wait, I already uh, answered it. I said Weird Al. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> you, did, you did say Weird Al. What, so what is your, no, I won't go there. If you were stuck on a desert island, what musical artist's catalog there, you got a CD that has every single song that they've ever written. Who, who would you take with you on that? on that desert island for a year. Am I going to like shame myself if I say Taylor Swift? I like her work. No, you would not. <laughs> You're definitely not like the per- We've had many Taylor Swifts on desert <laughs> islands. Don't worry. <laughs> I, she's got a good catalog. It, she's not that old, but she's been singing for so long that there's a good oh collection. Yeah. Yeah. It was, she was like 12 or 13, yeah, I think, no. right? Wasn't she? It was yeah. like crazy in the country phase yeah, of, her, she's got, she's, of her career. She started Spans some different genres too. It's great. Yeah. I, sh- I think she's well, a brilliant lyricist. She's a brilliant lyricist. She has a great musical talent. She's a great, you know, singer. So all of those. That yeah, that's a fantastic one. I was thinking you could then get Weird Al to do a cover of of some of his. Awesome. You know, I don't know. Does he have any? I'm, t- I'm sure he has to have. I don't know. I, I don't he know. Does I don't know that he does. <laughs> well, I, that would be a pairing, a match made in heaven. <laughs> there you go. Oh man, Yael, thank you, thank you so much. This has been so insightful, so wonderful. We are so happy that you are able to take time and and spend it with us here at Behavioral Groups. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a delight. And as I said before, I'm a huge fan. So really, this is like such an honor. Thank you for having me on. Welcome to our grooving session where Mary and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Yale, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our guilt-laden, overwhelmed parenting brains. Well, how is that for uh, yeah. a kind of intro I've there? I've got yeah? a guilt-laden, uh. overwhelmed mind right here. That's a perfect introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, for for listeners too, as we were starting the the podcast and recording of this, not the podcast, but the recording of the the grooving session here, your child came in through the door as we're doing that kind of going. 
Oh, and you had to kind of manage yeah, that. It is, yeah. it's true, right? Yeah. We live in a world where our, it's just everything is over, overlapping mm-hmm. and, you know, working out of houses, working out of offices and various different pieces. It's just, it's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. The boundary between parenting and working, I mean, especially with the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, those lines are pretty blurred and, and that's, Kind of something we touched on with Yael, wasn't it? That the parenting aspect of your life and the work aspect of your life, they don't need to be separate and actually they can enhance each other. And I really like yeah. that aspect. And, and I know I brought up the Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote, but I absolutely love that quote of how yeah. she can, you know, she reframed it and said she was a better person as a professional because she was a mother, not despite of it. And I love that way of just thinking, okay, my kids are nurturing uh, my professional life as well because I'm a, I'm becoming a better person because of them. Yeah. Well, parenting, parenting's hard. Life in general mm-hmm. is hard. Mm-hmm. And, and to that point, I think one of the things that Yale was talking about is that we sometimes make it harder because of the way we feel about it. And, and you're kind of bringing up, you know, Ruth, Bader Ginsburg and the way that she reframed that is just this wonderful way of taking a look at the life that we all live, that we are all there and kind of layering on this element that says, hey, if we reframe this, if we think about this, that, you know, parenting isn't getting in the way of my career, it's actually enhancing my career and and it is part of who I am and it's teaching me things and it's teaching, you know, my uh, you know, my me things that I can do better in my in my job. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. And the talking about not easy. I think we have a. I think we do. We have a disillusion sometimes that it should be easy, or that other people have yeah. it easier. You know, you look at other people and say, oh, they have it so easy. It must be a breeze. You know, they've got all this help with grandparents or. It's not easy. It's not easy no matter what you've got. And stop trying to pretend well, it is. And actually, it shouldn't be easy. No, it shouldn't be easy. And, and I mean, we get meaning out of things that aren't easy. And, you know, just mm-hmm. quit looking at, at social media and looking at mm-hmm. that picture of the your neighbor or your friend that's out on the beach in Hawaii having this wonderful time and everybody's smiling in the picture because you know five minutes before that the kids were screaming and yelling or five minutes after that they're doing the same thing and you just, you know, you took the one picture Mm -hmm. that captures that and kind of pushed that out to the world. That's not, I mean, that's part of life, right? You have those moments. You have those wonderful moments and everybody does, but that's not you don't post the pictures of the kids screaming and yelling and you're getting mad because we're late for the, you know, whatever it is. And then the kids are just being kind of pains and you're being a pain because that's how it works. Mm-hmm. And I think too often and this is what an interesting piece with Yale and talking about this is that, you know, we are too hard on ourselves that the expectations from society uh, that we hold ourselves to is that we have to be perfect in all aspects. And I think that one piece right there is rethinking the expectations we have about what it means to be a parent. And not that we don't want to be good parents, but that being a good parent isn't meaning that we are always dawdling over our kids and responding to every need and attending every single baseball game and making sure that you know, we bring, solve all their problems. That's not the way to actually be a good parent. Sometimes we have to model the behaviors of what it's good for us so that they can see that it's important that we as parents have lives as well. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. So it's hard for me to have a discussion oh, yeah. without talking about Brene Brown. But I think she mentioned in her podcast once that she, she kind of had one of these scenarios with one of her children and she needed to, she came home from a long work event. She was absolutely exhausted. She needed to unwind, have time to herself. But her son had some concert or sports event or something. And she just said, look, buddy, I can't, I can't go. I've got to go to bed. I've got to take some time to myself. And it was further down the line that she, she brought it up with him again, I think, and said, you know, I'm really sorry. I couldn't go. And he said, no, I'm really glad you said it because I didn't know that we could just take time to ourselves. Sometimes yeah. I just want to be by myself. And he 
use that as permission to just have some unwinding time for himself, but only because she modeled it as a parent and she was riddled with guilt over it. But actually it was like this, this moment of freedom for him. And I think that's a good reminder as well that, okay, we can be riddled with guilt that we do some things as a parent, but actually we're modeling how to nurture ourselves and we're modeling that for our children. And I think Yael touched on that as well. And I love this idea that we model the the life that we want to have for our, our mm-hmm. kids, right? And we want them to be successful. We want them to have time for themselves. We want them to be good citizens. But as you said, if you're too tired coming home after a long day, you need that time for yourself. You want you don't want to model your kids that, no, I'm just going to trudge through and and you're going to have a mental breakdown because I have to, you know, be at your concert or whatever it would be. That isn't a positive piece. And it gets into, you know, some of the work the on resilience and mm-hmm. different pieces that kids have is that they, you know, life isn't always perfect. And, and teaching them that life isn't always perfect is actually part of our duty as, as parents. Mm-hmm. And it's not always up to us to help our kids overcome those disappointments and pains. They have to figure that out themselves because if they don't figure it out now where the stakes are low, mm-hmm. when they get out in the real world and the stakes are higher, that's where you run into big problems. Mm-hmm. So I find it hard, though, to take a step back. You know, when there's moments where they're struggling with something or they're, you know, they're questioning something. And, and we've recently moved. We've had a big move recently and moved from the UK to the US. And my kids have had to start a new school, make new friends, start afresh with everything. And the guilt I feel sometimes, you know, riddled with guilt that, oh, you know, we've pulled them out of a situation where they were happy and put them in a new one. But I have to keep coming back to that kind of reminder of, you know, this, this is, this is good for them that they they will have friends in two countries now because they're nurturing new friendships. They're keeping their old friendships and, and just reminding myself, it's not my job to fix everything is, is giving myself some grace and also just giving them some space. But it's hard, mm-hmm. right? That Very. guilt that you kind of want to, you want to jump in and solve everything mm-hmm. for your kids. Mm-hmm. But, but with your situation, I will just, you know, not that uh, an N of one is going to give you, you know, solace on this, but when I was growing up, I moved twice. And so I, when I was nine, I moved up to Minnesota from Wisconsin. Then at 13, I moved from Minnesota down to Iowa. Mm-hmm. And, you know, neither of those moves were particularly super painful for me, but they, nor were they, you know, super easy for me. But I look at that and I look at the way that that taught me of, I have to be able to go into situations that are unfamiliar. I have to be able to make new friends. I have to figure things out. And I look back at those two kind of things and I go, are we, am am I actually not giving my kids this uh, opportunity for growth because they're, going to live in the same house from birth until they leave for college. That's what we've, we made that decision and they have the same friends from when they were three years old (laughs) and all of these things. And so I'm like looking at this going, no, this was a, those moves were instrumental in who I ended up being and in a positive way because they showed me you can go into these situations. Yeah. I didn't like going into a new school uh, knowing nobody being kind of nerdy and quiet, but you know, that probably made me who I am much more than many other things in my life. And so, Hey, you know, you got to take the good with the bad and kind of understand that, you know, sometimes the immediate kind of thing that's kind of painful is a long-term benefit. Can I just point out the irony that I feel guilty because I've put my kids in a situation you're feeling guilty because you haven't put your kids in a almost identical situation like can we find more ways to beat ourselves up as parents <laughs> exactly which is exactly what you exactly. talking about Everybody with that. Feels good. I mean, and i've had this conversation with friends before so i've got three young children they're all close in age and you know they play together and during the pandemic that was great i've got friends who have one child and they they are riddled with guilt that you know they don't they don't have playmates they don't they don't have more than one sibling 
And I was just like, oh, man, I am riddled with guilt that I don't give my undivided attention to any of my children because there's three of them. I'm like, we always find a way to beat ourselves up as parents, no matter what the circumstances. Which is one of the things, and you brought this up in the conversation, and, I, and Yale talked about it, is that we need to have self-compassion. Yes. We need to, as you said, give ourselves some grace mm-hmm. and this idea that we, you know, it's not going to be perfect, and we're always going to find fault, as you just said. It's like, yep, I, I'm not moving my kids. You are moving your kids, and we'll both find a way to be guilty about that, right? Yeah. And this idea that we can um, live our own lives and know, and this is the one thing, I, and I've thought, I've, I've talked to my wife about this in, in the past, and said, you know, if you're not horrible to your kids, right? If you're, if you're not abusing them, and mentally or physically, whatever it is. You know, our kids are pretty damn resilient Mm -hmm. and, you know, the not showing up at a basketball game, you know, you know, maybe yelling at them because they they didn't pick up their room when you asked them to, you know, all of those types of things that we sit there and, and as you say, you know, ruminate over about, oh, my gosh, what am I going to know, I just ruined this kid's life. No, Mm -hmm. you didn't. Right. And they will mostly bounce back. Yeah, actually. Almost always, 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 always bounce back. And, and we just are over indexing on the negative when we need to think about all the positive things that we're doing. And even in those instances where, as you, as like Brene Brown said, I'm just, I need some time to myself. You're teaching your kids Mm -hmm. really positive lessons. And, you know, even if you, you know, bark at your kid one day, they understand, you know, parents are human too and they have emotions mm-hmm. and I need to be able to figure that out and figure out how to deal with that and all of those factors that come in and then how you respond back to them, right? Mm-hmm. All of those are, are great lessons for, for kids to have. So Yeah, I love the lesson about self-compassion and I it's kind of an underlying theme of the podcast. It's come up quite a few times just in passing from guests. I think Daniel Pink yeah. mentioned it. Daniel Pink, when he talked about regrets in his book, he said that the learning of self-compassion was one of the biggest takeaways that he took from the book, and he was really surprised by it. And then just recently, we had Gabriella Ross and Kellerman talk about self-compassion yeah. as actually a component of being resilient, which was a really interesting yeah. way of thinking about it. And Nir Ayal, I'm sure, brought it up as well. In, in the podcast. <laughs> I'm sure he did as well. Yeah. So yeah. I love that this is an underlying scene, but we're so terrible at it. We're so terrible at just giving ourselves some grace. And I love the, the, the kind of model of if your friend was in this situation, you know, if your friend had just yelled at their kids because they'd had a long day and they were really tired, what would you say to your friend? You would say, don't beat yourself up. You know, you've had a long day. <laughs> your kids are fine. They're, they'll be okay. I would have said you are a horrible parent. I don't know what you're doing. You should have. You should just quit the parenting job altogether. Exactly. And, you know, yeah, yeah, we do that. No, in our you own don't. Heads. Right? <laughs> exactly. That's the story we tell ourselves, yeah. but we wouldn't tell that to our friend because we see them when they're acting at their best too, and we see how good their kids are, and and you know we know that we all make mistakes, and that that's okay. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I just wanted to add the self-compassion when you yell at your your kids, you know, if you do something, you know, you shouldn't have, it's, you know, you can talk yourself out of it. What I really find profound with Yale's book and what she talked about was there are some situations like that really poignant, really difficult situation with her dad being in hospice care and her son's birthday on the other side of the country. What do you do? There is no right or wrong answer in that situation. And giving yourself grace and letting, just giving yourself some self-compassion and just acknowledging Mm -hmm. there is no right or wrong answer here. Those are the situations where I think it's even harder to just be kind to yourself and give yourself a bit of um, leeway um, but again, yeah. we're better at doing it for other people, but, but modeling that behavior as a parent will show that our kids that, yeah, that there are moments where there's, there's no right or wrong answer. And, and you just gotta, I mean, as Yael said, she, she went back to her values. What does she value? What would her dad value yeah. in that situation? And that's a great way to think about, okay, what's the most important thing just in this moment? Well, and I think you bring up a really good point. And 
that this we are in life and not just parenting just in life sometimes we are pulled in two different directions i i want to I want to do this activity uh with my rotary club but I have this other piece that we are you know that as a family thing and they're at the same time mm. and but I can't be two places at one time mm. and you have to make a choice mm. and that no matter what you are going to let one party down or the other or let yourself like you're going to miss out on something that you don't and life is filled with those moments and those are places where again we just have to give ourselves that grace and to kind of go back as you said to values but also just say you know what you know next time i will i'll be i'll maybe choose differently if if things happen or whatever that would be mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. all right well mary i think that about wraps it up any last thoughts from you no this was really fun <laughs> it's you know, it's quite I, we, a we've had this, we, we, yeah, we've had this email interaction with Tim and I mentioned Tim. I said, you might become Drew Brees because, you know, we have Tom Brady filling in on, on this <laughs> thing where, and for those of you who don't know, uh, Drew Brees was the quarterback for the Patriots before and then he got injured and Tom Brady filled in and, uh, and Drew Brees never got his job back really. So Tom Brady became one of the all time best you know, quarterbacks of, of the NFL. And, you know, Tim, you're, you're, you're going to yeah. run for your money. Didn't here, you so. say in the same email though, that Tom Brady was like the sixth pick or the sixth substitute for, so I don't know. Oh, he, he was, he was picked in the sixth round, 199th pick. He was in the sixth round. Okay. He was like the, this, you know, you know, I'm not I don't know saying if you're that about that you. I'm the sixth choice of, you know, co-host today. <laughs> Oh, see again. Now I'm gonna feel guilty about putting that in there. Oh, going, oh, I didn't mean that. We Mary. always there find ways go. to make ourselves feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway. Well, with that, thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the show. And you know, we know that uh, you know we are parents and and people, and we have lots of things going on in our life, and that our behaviors are important that we are actually better parents uh, when our world isn't fully built around our kids and showing them that we have a life as well. And I think that is an important piece to remember. And so take that message as you go out this week and find your group. Mm-hmm.